Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hi, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. I just had a new idea for our song about the Name Your Price tool. So when it's like, tell us what you want to pay, hey, 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 and the trombone goes, blah, 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 and you say, we'll help you find coverage options to fit your budget. Then we just all do finger snaps while a choir goes, savings coming at ya, savings coming at ya. Yes? No? Maybe? Anyway, see your practice tonight. I got new lyrics for the rap break. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law.
Welcome back to the Heavy Metal Mayhem Radio Show. It is Sunday, April 22nd, and it's a beautiful day here in New York City. Finally, some warm weather. We've waited a long time. It was a very cold and dreary winter, but the spring has finally sprung. Hey, we got a great show for everybody tonight. It doesn't get any more classic rock than this. Brad Sinsel from TKO, the band is celebrating 40 years. I mean, that really makes me feel old when I put that number out there. But they've been around for 40 years now, and I remember buying that first record way back in the early 80s. And after that, Corky Lang from Mountain, 50, probably 60 years in the business with his other bands outside of Mountain. And we're going to talk to Corky about his uh, Pompeii project kind of super group he put together back in the 70s. I never really kind of took off, but they're releasing the album right now. All right. Right there, Manowar, Metal Days. Manowar's kind of wrapping up their time. I don't know if they're not going to record new music anymore, if they're just not touring anymore. But, you know, according to them, it's their final tour. So that doesn't really say, you know, it's the end of the band. It might just be the end of touring for them. You know, when you think about it, the guys are getting up into their 60s right now. Some of them in their late 60s. You know, it gets harder and harder. So, uh, but you know what? Ross the Boss is out there. Just put out a brand new record on AFM. He still has that classic Man of War sound going. And he's out there doing a whole Man of War set most of the time, more than his originals. Uh, so you can always catch Ross doing that with Mark Lopes on vocals. There was an article in Blabbermouth about Ross saying, you know, they, the title they used was about him sort of like trying to pinpoint that certain artists are using like backing tracks and they're performing live. But if you actually listen to the interview, or read what was said. He didn't mean it or say it that way. That's just blabbing out, trying to create controversy out of a headline. He just meant about using recording music. He was talking more about himself and what he does, and not about other bands. Uh, that's just the way of stirring up shit, and, you know, but that's what Blabbermouth does. All right, let's keep the music flowing here. We're going to talk to Brad in about 25 minutes or so. We'll give him a call. How about a little uh, Sacred Oath? We haven't played them on the show in a long time. Here's Two Powers.
Fox without the get you. Uh, Dustin sent me an email the other day saying, how about, you know, playing some of the newer generation of classic metal bands out there? And we do sprinkle them here and there throughout the show. But for him, somebody asked, we got to play. So here's some Steel Wing, and we'll follow it up with some Vulture.
right, Dustin, there you go. Vulture and Steel Wing back to back. We're going to get on some other new music later on in the show. We're going to talk to Brad Sinsel in a few minutes. So let's jump into some TKO music. We'll get Brad on the line. We'll play some new music, some classic music. And then we got Corky Lang from Mountain after that. All right, so stick around, everybody. Here's uh, TKO. They put out an album last year called Round 2. This was the demos that were recorded for, which would have been the band's second record, which kind of never saw the light of day. So now you kind of get a chance to hear them for the first time. If you haven't picked up the record, this is In For The Kill.
right, TKO in for the kill. We'll give Brad a call right now. And Brad called me like two months ago to set up this interview because I had a lot going on this month. But today, I think him and the band are doing interviews at a couple of local radio stations. So we're going to catch him in between those interviews, hopefully, and he's done with them. So let's uh, reach out for him right now and uh, get this interview going here. Bear with me. One second, and we'll dial him up. Yeah. Brad, it's Mike. You're live on the air. How are you, my friend? Hey, man. I'm doing good. I'm beat. I just got (laughs) back from Seattle. I had to be in Seattle last night at KSW for an interview there and meet with a guitar player and then drive the 200 miles home. and, And now here we are. And now you're stuck talking to me when you should be resting. No, no, no. That's all I've been doing. <laughs> hey, but that's it, all isn't I've been that a good doing. thing when when you know things happen again and the band is that busy? I mean, when we spoke last year, the album just came out, uh, the demo album, and you were like, I don't know if it's going to happen again with TKO. You're like, I just can't get away from this thing. But and next thing you know, the band's reforming. Yeah, the the only way I'm getting out of TKO is in a box, right? <laughs> Well, as, as a fan, I don't want to see you go out just yet in a box, but I'm glad that, you know, I mean, and then I see, like, the 40th anniversary. I was like, 40 freaking years. I'm like, where did this time go? It feels like it was just yesterday. I was spinning that record on my turntable, and it's 40 years already. Well, yeah. I mean, um, Let It Roll came out in 79, so um, you blink your eyes, and here we are. Yeah. So officially true. the 40 years uh, will be next March. But, you know, I started scratching my head on that number. Um, we actually have been together for a year and a half prior to 79. So we're probably well into the 40th. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, you know, you put it back together now. I mean, and next thing you know, there were shows being booked. You hooked up on festivals again. So is it kind of going the way you wanted it to? I mean, is this how you wanted it to to come about when you did put the band back together? Um, You know, TKO has always been my home plate, you know. No matter what I go out and experiment with, I always land back at home base. And and, uh, I was talking about this last night. It's like, it was as simple as a phone call and and an offer um, that got this rolling. And immediately I said, yeah, let's do it with, without hesitation. So, so the time's right. Do it as long as you can. Exactly. Well, I mean, Evan's, Evan's playing with you again with the band almost since the very beginning when you think about it. You got Kendall, who's just an amazing guitar player. And, and Jeffrey, I mean, it's sort of like that, Fifth Angel, Q5 family, you know, mixed in with the TKO guys. It's like a click. Very incestuous town, Seattle is. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> but, but it's a good maybe, maybe I'm like Maybe I'm like a Mormon with, with all these wives. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you think about it, it is, it is kind of a small town. So, I mean, you know, I guess you don't have a lot to pick and choose from, especially quality musicians. And you got a, you know, right. a bunch of good ones. Well, everything, you know, uh, floats to the top. 
and 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 uh, in this business, the priors are spread real thin. So you know, people find one another, and sometimes they think they're happening for somebody, and sometimes they're not for the other person. And you know, I don't know. I don't know. Q five was uh, up in Canada playing last night, so Evan and and, and uh, Jeffrey are are going to jump out of that and rehearsals are next week for the opening show which is a week from tonight no last night a week so six days from now uh in seattle to warm up so everybody's busy yeah well that's always a good thing now that the, now that you have this lineup together now are you going to focus on just like playing festivals or select shows or you think you want to take it out as much as you can or as often as you can or is it better to kind of pick and choose where and when you play? The, the plan right now is we we pick three select dates to see how it how it goes, and we're not going any further than that. I mean, the rehearsals are insane. I mean, they're off the hook, really crisp, um, great new energy. Uh, Kendall is attacking because um, we're doing in your face in the entire album with a couple okay. of bonus bonus things in there. So he's got some some shoes to fill there, but not only is he doing that, but he's also putting his own trademark on it, which gives it this new fresh thing that that it needed. Yeah. Yeah, you know, for some fans that can get a little iffy because they like to hear the songs the way they were originally meant to be, but you know, so many years have passed and when you think about it, TKO has always had sort of like a revolving door. I mean, you being the one concert, a lot of people have come and gone in the band, and the sound has always changed a little bit here and there. So I guess it's kind of acceptable for most people to hear it played in a different style. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it, it hasn't changed. You know, it hasn't strayed too far from the foundation, but just enough to to make it fresh. Yeah. Do you think uh, you might want to do new music? Is that something that's an option if these shows go well? Well, Kendall and I, Kendall and I, immediately hit it off in the writing stuff, and we're trading back ideas. So, so we'll see where that goes. I yeah, I can't yeah. stop writing. I mean, writing is a a dedication. It's a it's an affliction. You know, you just yeah. Some people walk away from it. There are times I wish I could. <laughs> you know, you when your can't. brain works like a when your brain works like a Rubik's cube, you know, uh, <laughs> going through the possibilities, you know. Yeah, you just no, I know it. that feeling. Well, you you you'll, you'll see so many bands that have been around for a long time. They get back together, and all they want to do is go out and play the classics. They're not interested in writing any more new music. And as an artist, I think that you kind of limit yourself where you don't want to keep creating. You know. Yeah, creating is, you know, it, it's all crucial to the success of a happy career is, you know, unless you want to be like Gary Puckett and Union Gap. I'm dating myself here, but, you know, <laughs> no, these guys that, that end up, you know, just running around the country playing the hit, you know, that doesn't yep. sound attractive to me. 
no, I, I completely get that. Well, you know, when you think about it, being in a band, sometimes it could be the biggest headache and the biggest hassle in the world. When you got the right bunch of guys together, it could be the greatest thing for a while. You know, things always seem to go wrong or, you know, personalities just emerge. Why not just go out as, you know, Brad Sinsel and, and doing the TKO show or doing anything you want? So really, you only have to worry about you. Is that ever an option? <laughs> Uh, you know, the way it works, um, the phone call came from Evan, and Evan and I go back to sixth grade, you know. Wow. Um, so there there are certain players that work well together, and there are certain that, that just naturally rub each other the wrong way. My plan is, is that I'm kinder and gentler, and I get along with people now. I didn't always get along with people, but... Um, I, I think the main thing for me to to do is, you know, TKO has a legacy, and and I'm the pilot, so I just keep yeah. grabbing troops and taking it out. Yeah. Well, we, we, you know, when you say you don't get along with people, that sort of happens to a lot of bands and a lot of musicians. When you grow out of that, is it time and maturity, or do you just run out of people to fight with? Well, at some point, you learn to pick your battles. Yeah, you know, but there's also this the the past pull date, like like uh, goods in a grocery store. You know, if a band is in the trenches working on their success and it doesn't come, it can tear at the foundation, and and suddenly suddenly your best buddy guitar player doesn't smell so good. You know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> people start noticing it's very much like any personal relationship um you need those positives to keep that energy up sure when things do go bad i mean sometimes it's no fault of the band itself it could just be all those outside influences that come in the fingers start pointing to blame somebody even though that person wasn't really the one to blame and he's just saying i right. didn't do nothing what the hell they pointed at me for <laughs> right well somebody always has to be you know, the fall guy. That's just human nature, I think. Lord knows I've been in that position. <laughs> I can imagine. Well, but you say, like, when you're in the trenches and you're working hard and you're trying to make a success out of it, and, and it just doesn't come and happen sometimes, I mean, where does the, where does the blame lie in that? Because you, you can take TKO. The, the image was there. The look was there. The music was there. The sound was there. I mean, the, the, the hooks were there in the songs. And when it just doesn't happen, you sit back and say, it's us. Or is it, you know, it's the business, it's management, it's, you know, somebody else, uh, the stars won't align the right way, and it could be a little bit of everything. Right. Right. It's never any, it, in my case, it's never been any one thing. It's been a combination of, of, of being being in a production deal um, with a producer that, record labels didn't particularly want to deal with those restrictions. So, I mean, just there's a, there's a list of about 10 things like that, that, that certainly got in our way. But in that, you know, you talk about success. Um, when I, I'm in the middle of, of uh, autobiography right now and I'm writing down some of the things we achieved. And I'm like, holy shit, that's nothing to sneeze at. So yeah. I'm I'm blessed for for where I've got. 
got a home, got a cat, got a dog, got a wife, you know. All the good things in life. Yeah. That, that's very important. I mean, when you think about the music scene today and the business today, I mean, it's dominated with the internet and, and computers and social media, stuff that we didn't have back in the 70s and the 80s, even into, into the early 90s. I mean, was ge- did geography play a big, you know, thing in the band's history back when you say, you know, we're from the Northeast, but the scene has happened in L.A., there's a scene happen in New York. Did where a band oh, everything from effect where they can make it? Sure. I mean, everything was the, the term regional, you know, they're, yeah. they're regional stars in the Northwest or, you know, or, or the other thing is you had to move someplace. You had to physically be in, in Hollywood or New York. And, and a lot of people got to New York only to find out, no, 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 you need to be in Hollywood. You know, and I spent a year down in Hollywood and I left in frustration because I really didn't find anything I like and yeah. moved back to Seattle. And within six months, there I was with War Baby. So, um, you know, with the Internet now, the the barriers of regions and locations has just dissolved. Yeah, definitely. It makes you know, in a way, yeah, it's definitely easy to get the music out, get people to hear who you are. But it seems like it's even harder today for a band to bring attention to themselves because it's such a massive medium and so much is going on. Oh yeah. I mean, TKO yeah. has a name for themselves. People know who you guys are, so that makes it a little easier. But for a new band starting out today, I mean, I don't know how you even find how you would even find them. Yeah, yeah. There's so much chatter. You know, how do you yeah. stick your head above the maddening crowd? It's beyond me. <laughs> it's hard. But, you know, yeah, we had our own restrictions because I think uh, when we were coming up, we moved to Seattle and there were over a thousand bands um, wow. fighting f- for get- the same gigs. And, you know, we just in a timely fashion took to writing our material and got a deal and got the hell out of that restriction. Yeah. W- w- was it a competitive scene where you really were in competition with other bands or that did, did everybody kind of work together, like further the scene along and, and, you know, help each other out? No. Well, I, I think we were different because the bulk of the band came from more of the center of the state, which is more, uh, agricultural based smaller town and we were kind of like a gang um, and when we got to Seattle the hippie thing had was just dying down and we were very anti-hippie um, and they were like you know everybody was their brother and you're like you're not my brother yeah. <laughs> we were very very different and um I think around the time grunge hit, all that animosity kind of died down and everybody was everybody's buddy. And But prior to that, people were people were pretty vicious. Bands were the original gangs compared to what the kind of gangs we have today. I mean, yeah. Aside yeah. from automatic weapons, I mean, if you were in a band, that was your gang. Yeah, I can imagine. Fred, when you got into the business, and you know, even like going, let's just say, to the beginning of TKO when it's starting to, you know, build up and take off. I mean, were you as much business minded as you were music minded, or did you have to learn the business part of it 
later on down the road? Well, you learn as you go because it, it the business continually changes. I mean, as soon as you know one thing, it's invalid. It's now something else. And the thing I always try to focus on is get connected with with good management. And I've been blessed with with some great management through the years. I started out with Ken Kinnear, who um, managed Hart. And from him, um, uh, who else have I been with? Well, there was Kelly Curtis, who uh, Pearl Jam, and and Allison Chains, and Warren Entner, who um, of course had Quiet Riot and Faith No More. First time I talked to Warren um, was when Quiet Riot offered me the job to replace Kevin Dubrow, which was in the later 80s, 86, 87, I think that was. Yeah. But that just never happened. But my point is getting getting with with surround yourself with the best people that that know the business and and then you get those breaks. You get the big tours with, you know, the Yeah. Cheap Trick, the, the Van Halen, the ACDC, all that kind of stuff comes from, you know, it's, it's all who you know. True. You know, get, getting back to the quiet writing, because that's the first time I heard that, that you were, because I know Paul Shortino actually got that gig, you know, and he put that album out with them. Paul's a very bluesy, you know, type singer, and had took that band in a whole different direction. But before that, quiet right kind of like, you know, hit a wall and kind of fell out of favor anyway before the record came out. So was it just an offer that was made to you was to it, try out for the band, or was, did it go any further? Um, it it got, came down to a meeting, and uh, they slipped me the roughs they were working on in the studio and there were horns in it. And I immediately went, what the hell is this? <laughs> and, and so I do, we met uh, for a sit down and uh, Frankie was kind of doing all the talking. And, and as the years have progressed and, and Frankie's like in my position where he's a founding member and the, the talking yeah. head. Um, I, I think Chuck Wright was in it at that time. Am I right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was there, but but right out of the gates, they said, "You you've heard the the studio stuff we've been working on." I go, "Yeah, yeah." Well, what would you do to to uh, if anything to change Quiet Right? I said, "I'd lose the horns and I'd get back to who you are." You know, I never heard from him after that. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's they not what they wanted to hurt. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. You know, they didn't put the album out with the horns on it, but it was definitely a much more bluesier type of record. That has to do a lot with Paul Shortino's, you know, vocal style too. Sure, sure. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'm you know I'm glad you didn't go there because I think it would have just been another nightmare anyway. Cause that, there's a lot yeah. of that shit that happened in that band. Right. Yeah. And does it get to a point where you just you know what I, I've had enough of this you know I just can't be bothered anymore it just gets to be yeah. a headache I just got to do my thing my way and you know with the people I know and and get along with and can make things happen right it's always important hey, hey Brad listen I'm not gonna keep you man I know you're exhausted man you've been out this all weekend traveling I'm gonna get on some TKO music you got the show coming up in six days. 
in your home state of Washington. And then you have, I know you're going to be in Chicago at the Legions of Metal Fest. So I think you're heading over to Europe with the band right after that, too. A lot of good things are happening. I hope you keep this going, take it further, and, you know, put out new music. Even if it isn't on the TKO, just to hear you keep singing is all I want. Hey, there you go. I appreciate that. Uh, and it's always good talking friends. to you, man. You too, Brad. Go rest. Enjoy what's left of your Sunday. I know it's almost all right. but enjoy what you can and take it easy. Have a great show, man. You too, Brad. Take care. All right, Brad Sensor from TKO. Let's get back to that record we played music off of before. Round two, here's Down to Tears.
right, there you go. TKO, big fan of the band. Hoping for a lot more from them in the future. In about 15 minutes or so, we got, we got Corky Lang from Mountain. We're going to be talking to Corky in a little bit. Before then, we're going to have some more, more blah, blah, excuse me, I'm a little tongue-tied here. Some more new music. The other day, uh, last week, actually, Dave says to me, did you get a chance to check out the new Seven Sisters record? And I had it sitting in the bin for a while. I just wasn't able to get to it. I've had a lot going on here at the house. So uh, I did finally sit down the other day, and, man, these guys did it again. They are such a great young band. I mean, they really brought back and they recreate that classic new wave of British heavy metal sound down to a T. This record sees the band branching out a little bit more, but what a solid record. Off the new one, here's Once and Future King.
tantrum with shot for shot off the Trenton City murder record last week. John Richard, we had John on the show about a year or so ago, maybe a little longer. He reached out to me. He was like, you know, because he heard the interview with Rick Fox. He's like, you know, I played in sim with Rick Fox back in the, in the late 70s. And I didn't even know that. I mean, I didn't know that uh, Brett Sensel, you know, got the offer from Quiet Riot. And who knew Quiet Riot wanted to put horns on, on that follow-up record. That had to be the record that came out with Paul Shortino. Uh, but I don't remember there being horns on there, but there could be. But I was kind of out of the band uh, by that time. I really wasn't paying much attention to them or what they were doing. Uh, but, yeah, so John played in uh, Synth for a little bit with Rick. And uh, I love Tantrum. That album was re-released about a year or so ago uh, by Cult Metal Classic. They did a really nice job on that packaging, too. All right, let me see here. We're going to get to Corky Lang in a couple of minutes. We'll play, well, we'll do one or two more songs. Maybe we'll jump into some mountain after that and then play that interview. For right now, here's Crackjaw with Galley Without Aim. Thank you. 
Knight Rider, Stranger in a Strange Land. You know what? We should do like a weekly, you know, uh, Steven Adler, ex-Guns N' Roses drummer, Cryfest. Every week there's an interview with this guy where he moans and groans and cries about not being a part of this Guns N' Roses reunion. I mean, we usually talk about it every time there's an article, but it's like a weekly thing. I mean, then he'll interview, like, do one interview in the morning and moan and groan about it. Then I'll do, no, do another interview in the afternoon where he's like, ah, you know, there's no bad feelings or, you know, I don't, there's no hard feelings about it. But you keep crying about it. Let it go. I mean, you haven't been a part of the band in, like, two and a half decades. You know, there's a reason for it. Just let it go. All right, here. How about we do some mountain with Mississippi Queen? And then we'll talk to Corky Lang right after that. Here you go. cups of coffee, so if I go on and on, you'll understand, right? Absolutely. Are you recording or are you writing? Are, are you recording or are you writing? We're recording this the, for, for a live radio. Okay. Uh, oh, so hey, it's, it's recorded for live. All right. Correct. I just didn't know if I was allowed to swear and stuff. It's, this is Metal Mayhem, right? That's right. You could curse. You could say anything you want to say. 
Okay, I don't prefer to curse, but if I do, you'll understand, <laughs> you know. After Absolutely. All, when you get to be 70 years old, you feel like that's all you can do is fucking curse, you know. That's what's going on. <laughs> you know? uh, anyway, so uh, so how are you doing today, Mike? What's hey. up? Where are you? Where are you located? Uh, well, these days, Staten Island in New York City, you know, in the old days uh, from Brooklyn, New York. Mm. Very cool. Very cool. Um, yeah. Um, so, so talk to me about what you're doing, what's going on in your life. How's your family? You know, you know, are you getting laid regularly? What's going on in your life, Mike? Well, you know, I, you I know. got a beautiful family. Unfortunately, uh, I'm not getting laid as much as I used to anymore, but, uh, you know, that's what happens as you How? get older, I guess. So if you're not a rock star. Well, you know, you're probably a rock star to your family, which is the way to be. Uh, how old are you, Mike? So I get an idea. If you're metal mayhem, I'm guessing you're in your 40s. Uh, mid-50s. Mid-50s. All right. So, but basically, I imagine you're feeling like this is Absolutely. the idea. Every, every there you go. Everything like it's 22 except for the, for, the, for the groin. But other than that, we're okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, right. You're, you're, what, what it is is you're stiff in all the wrong places. Huh? That's right. <laughs> there you go. Absolutely. There you go. Well, so you've been around. So you've been around the city, the New York area. This is yeah. this is very cool, you know. And um, <clears throat> I guess what we're talking about is the secret sessions, Pompeii, and that particular vinyl. Is that what we're talking about? Absolutely. And when I listen to this, the music on that album, I'm like, how the hell did this shit get locked away for 40 years and never saw the light of day? Well, that's why it's called Secret Sessions, you know? We're, we're <laughs> into a spy to. country. <laughs> the, the Russians really came in and hacked it. That's why it's up. That whole vinyl thing <laughs> used to be the American labels, and it, it went around in circles. Mike, you've been in the business 20 minutes. You know what 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 doesn't happen and what does happen, you know? Yeah. It's like there's certain labels, you know? It's it's like how do you get rid of how do you get rid of age? You know, you give it the polygram distribution. That's the way you get rid of it. It's kind of <laughs> like it's sick. The business is fucking sick, and um and you become affected by the business. You know, for you're you're a writer. Are you a musician too? I I used to be. I still play bass, but not not as often as I used to back in the day. Yeah, who is your favorite bass player? Just quickly, off the top of your head. Oh, boy, I tell you, Jocko was amazing. Uh, more recently, well, not recently, because Billy Sheehan's in his 60s these days, but I think he's a phenomenal yeah. player. And I, and I should yeah. say Felix, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah, no, you don't have to say. Well, here's the thing people really don't know. Felix was never a bass player. He was actually a musician, and he went to Ann Arbor, and he became a, a doctor of music. And he mainly he mainly played anything. He actually played the brass instruments beautifully. But when he played in Mountain, that was his first time ever playing bass in a band. You know, so it was kind of interesting. I you know I found that out because I knew his background was production. He could play anything. You know, he could play string instruments. He's, he's an amazingly well-rounded musician. But it was the first time he played bass. And after producing Jack Bruce and Cream separately and together, he he just be, he became a terrific bass player because he emulated whoever he wanted to. I mean, he could accomplish anything on those four strings. It's amazing. It was really wonderful. But it's funny because I felt like as he was teaching me, 
because he was that kind of musician, brilliant, and he was learning. It was kind of a really symbiotic relationship, Mike, and uh, I think that was one of the, I think one of those preemptive things that you had to think about and go, wow, yeah, that was really happening that way. You know, just off the record, and after my 14th cup of coffee, I would say <laughs> between Jack, between Jack Bruce and yeah. and Felix, and I'll throw in Levon in there, these are teachers. They're not just players. They give. You know, they, they spread. They take up the whole space, and when you go in there, you are changed, you know, on, on a musical level, definitely. You can you in order to be in that environment you have to assert yourself and become that much more. You have no choice. Otherwise they don't want to know you. There's a tremendous selfishness to to brilliant people. They don't want to be around anything less. They'll talk to you and they'll have a beer and they'll get high with you, but they won't play with you unless you are at that bar, which is kind of interesting. And um, you know, in this business they call them groupies because they're women. Yeah. But some of the best musicians are groupies. They want to get next to the musician they love, you know. And we're not talking homoville here. We're talking music, you know. And yeah, yeah. I think it's brilliant, especially in those days. In those days, it was about being there, you know, showing up. You, when you rub shoulders with somebody, you really rub shoulders, you know. And um, it was an exceptionally wonderful time, especially if you're in the age area where you are able to absorb it because as we go through life there's times when you absorb and there's some times where you just shit it out you know so anyways that was my 14th cup of coffee mike yeah. so <laughs> do you think do you think stuff like that is missing today i mean i don't see that like, like that type of camaraderie that type of musicianship existing anymore there's a lot of great young bands out there and musicians but i don't know if it's because the business is not what it used to be and record companies not king anymore or it's just it's just not there anymore. Well, keep in mind, just historically, when MTV came in, it was, uh, I mean, people uh, were conflicted, musicians about, well, do I look good or do I play good? So they had yeah. another aspect to their career, which we didn't have in the late 60s, 60s. You know, it wasn't there. You, you played, and that was the sexual thing. We played what you heard turned you on. It wasn't what you were wearing and what you were posing. It was very different. It was very different. And, um, yes, it did change, but I don't know that's anybody's fault or anything. It's just the way life went on. And if you think about it, Mike, when you look back on the 60s, in England, they didn't have, they only had two radio stations, BBC One, BBC Two. But what they yeah. did was they had four or five music papers. So when they were promoting, it wasn't so much or equally amount of time put into the music, it was a lot of how you looked. And that's why all the English bands, when they had the British invasions, looked really sharp, because that's the way they promoted them in England. Over in America, you had a radio station for every kind of category, even in those days on FM. Yeah. So you can get bands like the Eagles that could show up in their underwear, and nobody would care, because it was all about the sound of the, of the band. So it was two different... Um, Two different, uh, I would say, formats for a band in terms of you know projecting their 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 brand. Some of them looked great, some of them played great, and some of them did both. But when you're talking about the camaraderie, when you, I mean, I was very fortunate. I'll say that one. My big four-letter word is luck. When you get to play, 
and record and go through all the um, the different techniques of of building your career and you're working and playing with people that show up. They don't send in their parts. They care. I mean, it was a time when, keeping in mind, it was tremendous competition, but it was very, very healthy, you know? And, um, I mean, I could drop names and do all that. I'm not going to bore you with that. But basically, I was very lucky because Mountain had the same management as The Who over in England. So, basically, those are the people we were hanging out with, you know? I mean, Keith Moon became a friend. And apart from the fact that I adored him immensely, I, you know, I, I, I was on a show in Montreal when I was in my local band. When the invasion came in, Mike... All the yeah. English bands, all of them had to go through Montreal to get their visas. And I had a local band called Energy, and our manager at the time, he ran. He was the promoter for the forum. And we were put on those shows. It was, uh, it was a, a request by the Canadian government. If there's any shows, international acts come in, you have to add a Canadian act, like a Canadian content type of deal. So we were fortunate to be on those shows. And that probably was the first thing to jettison me right in to that, that level, you know, and uh, you know, I'm not going to be an accountant. I'm not going to be a lawyer, but wow, look at these guys, you know, keep in mind the sixties, no, there was no industry yet. It was just kicking sure. in. And before that I was playing bar mitzvahs and sweet 16s. So I was 12, 13 years old. And, um, you know, I did my, I did my cover stuff. We covered everybody. But then all of a sudden, it was kind of like, wow, there, there's really a business here, you know? And that, you know, I, again, I started when, like, pop music was the sound you put when you put milk in a cereal. That was pop. But then, of yeah. course, you probably remember, speaking of bass, when the bass came and was electrified in the 60s, then the drummer could start hitting hard and not drown out the bass player, you know? And all of a sudden, it expanded. And then you had the Kinks coming with a great song with huge drums, huge yep. fucking drums. I mean, up until that, there were some here and there. Of course, there was Buddy Rich and Gene Krupa, who I loved. I loved Gene Krupa because basically that's what Keith Moon took off on. The way Gene Krupa played, he emulated that joy, the joy of playing. And uh, really, ultimately, that is the essence of, of drumming is the joy, the physical joy of getting it up. Very Zen, you know, very, put it through your body, get, you know, spill it out physically. You know, if you're playing flute, I don't know that you can do that, but drummers were very emotionally and physically able to do that if they, you know, if they so wished. But um, speaking of what you're saying, yeah, um, it was a physical existence so it wasn't like you just listened to records and copied them you had to do it you had to come up with your own character in the music because otherwise you were worth shit to anybody else you know you had to have your own thing and um, some people did and some people didn't but um, it was real at the time when I did this interview for for a modern drummer we were talking about you know the difference in the category of of rock drummers I'm not sure if you ever heard of uh, the Bonzo Bash, but they had uh, yep. uh, Brian Tichy, a great drummer from California, put together this particular celebration of, of Led Zeppelin and John Bonham. 
and he called it the Bonzo Bash. So he would drummers from all over, brilliant drummers would come in and play one, maybe two Led Zeppelin songs with this band that was a cover band. So you'd sit in and you'd play, and each it was wonderful because of course Led Zeppelin had had great songs to play. So you get up there and you you played that. So it, we were starting to get a community of drummers because on the road you really don't see many of your cohorts. You know you're traveling, but this was a time when everybody was together at the same place. You know, and on stage and playing and interacting, and it was wonderful. And I was talking to the modern drummer. We talked about I was lucky because I wasn't on a click track. I wasn't tethered to a to a metronome. So I had the freedom to play, like, and I don't have to tell you, when you were playing, you go to a zone, and the zone is yours. But when you play, when you have the opportunity to play with, you know, to expand and play bigger arenas or bigger places, or even create big songs, you know, big songs, uh, not loud, just big, there's a freedom there that happened during that era, late 60s, early 70s, where you had, you know, Keith, your, your ginger, I'm not putting myself in their category, but it was the same time window that we weren't tethered. We, we had the freedom and we were able to emulate through these bands, through these rock bands, a, a wonderful sense of freedom in life. And I, if I start getting corny, Mike, you can shut me down. But the not point is, it was magical because that, then everybody wanted perfection coming to the end of the 70s and the producers wanted the drummers on a click track so they can cut in and they can make it perfect or as perfect as they wanted. The music that I, I, it wasn't perfect at all. If anything, I was very critical of my playing. You listen to uh, the stones, you know, and they go slow, they get fast. They don't give a fuck because they're expressing themselves. And when you're in a band like that, and again, I was very fortunate to work with guys that just fucking played. Yes, we sat and we wrote, and they, they involved me in a lot of writing because I love to write. And you had that freedom. That would be the key. That's what, that's what these fucking wars are about. Just so in America, you have the freedom to say what you want, play what you want, and nobody's holding the back. You don't have to play to a, a program. And that's, I think, the difference between a lot of bands these days is uh, depending on the producer and I'm not yeah. criticizing or making any judgment. I'm just showing what I, what I feel is the difference between the music. If you play with the freedom and you know what you're doing and you're able to, you know, to play beyond the envelope, but still make it work. That's what you want to do. You know, that's what you want to do. And ultimately if people recognize it and you become successful, wonderful. But the essence is that freedom to play with joy. And it's a gift. And to get on stage, you know, that's, that's an honor for anybody. Whether you're playing, again, a Sweet 16 or Italian, when you get up to play, that's an honor for any musician. I always thought that, you know. I mean, yes, you, you can dress up and you can do whatever you want. You can add production. But essentially, a drummer, you cannot fucking fake it. If you're really going to put out, you can't fake it. And if you do, people with any kind of ear will see that and go, oh, he's good, but nothing special, or she's good. So as I ramble on, I'm just getting into the 
<clears throat> the political sociological aspect to rock because rock really changed the world took down the wall Absolutely. you know i'm talking politically but yep. i don't have to tell you when when you know the last i guess three decades of of elections they played rock music they didn't play any anything else yeah jazz was fine but because at the time rock was saying things and inspiring people and you know, I think every every politician I've run into wanted to play. I mean, Clinton wanted to play, play sax, you know. And yep. you know, Obama loved fucking drums, you know. Everybody loves, everybody's a drummer. Everybody's got a heartbeat, you know, and a pulse. It's just a matter of whether you, whether you own a, a, a drum set. That's really the only difference. And um, again, we were able to, in that era, we meaning, you know, my peers and stuff, were able to just, play play out and uh, the people that followed it were you know you can call them the love generation the flower people they were dancing everywhere and it was fucking wonderful anyways what's the next question mike i'm rambling <laughs> no but, but go, kind of going on what you were saying about having that freedom to express yourselves musically and create what you did because you had that freedom when do you think that started to end was it as record companies became bigger throughout the 70s and 80s that it happened because I hear so many bands that tell me, you know, the label signed us because of what we were doing. As soon as we got there, they wanted to change everything about us. I mean, is it the label's fault yeah. that music got stifled, or is it the artist's fault for allowing the label to change them for the sake of putting out a record? I think you, I think you nailed it. It's the artist's fault. You got to, you got to stand up for yourself. You go out of your way for years and years doing your ten thousand hours, and this fucker comes in, whoever it is, a producer. Uh, uh, an A&R guy comes in and says, well, no, you want to do this because this is what's happening on the radio. Well, that's time for the artist to say, hey, sorry, you signed me because I'm this. Don't change me. So it's up to the artist, you know, just uh, you can't blame anybody but oneself for that. We make the choices. We make the choices of where the downbeat is and where, you know, and what the tempo is. And um, if you have the confidence and I'm not talking about bullshit conceit, but you have the confidence to know who you are and what you're putting down and what your tempo is. Everybody walks to a different tempo. You keep that. That's what that's yours. You know, and it's up to the artist, the performer to say, No, this is what I'm doing. And the ones that are still around after two or three decades, the performers and I'm referring to, you know, rock performers, the ones that are around are the ones that stood their ground, you know, and um it's pretty obvious when somebody changes, like, hey, Mountain went through that in the 80s. You know, Leslie, Leslie wanted to put in a synthesizer. We never had any kind of any high-tech shit in the band. It was very organic. Leslie had his fucking cable pre- you know, plugged in from the guitar to the amp, and that was it. That was the umbilical cord. You know, go for it. And we, in the 80s, we started some, well, it's my fault, too, but actually at the time I was really upset with it, and I quit. I said, Les, I don't want to do this. You know, I don't, I don't want to. I don't want to change our. You know, he started using pedals and stuff. Leslie was known originally for his tone, for his 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 very the simplicity of this big, humongous guy squeezing the fucking notes out of this guitar without any crutch. You know, and then hey, he started getting on, and he said, "Oh man, I gotta change my shit, man." I, I just, I said, "No, Les, no, no." These pedals are getting in your way, and they're feeding back, and this and that. And he said, yeah, fuck you, man. I'm going to do it. I said, okay, you do what you're doing. And that's when I, 
I decided to leave that alone and get on with my life. But that was in the 80s. I, just, I forget the name of the record. <laughs> That's why. Um, but what I'm getting at, it wasn't so much the record label telling us what to do. It was kind of, Leslie felt that he'd be able to check into the 80s. And um, being the lyric writer in most cases, I'm saying, no, I don't think it matches what I'm thinking of writing. There's a relevant relevance to that. You want to be relevant, but then it's, it's kind of obvious. And if it gets obvious, there's no magic there. You know, people, oh, they're adding this so they can be cool. You know that, you know, you write, you listen yeah. to music. You know when it's, when it's bullshit, you know. So, you know, I get up to the artist, you know. And at that time, I made my decision. I said, fuck this. You know, I'm I'm going to let it be for a bit. Because the 80s was a very difficult time for the hard rock, classic rock. I hate to use what classic rockers. But, you know, from that, it was the punkers were taking over, you know. And they had their own revolution going on, you know. And it was legit. Most of it was legit. And a lot of those guys, like the Ramones, they did not use a click track. You know, that, that Mike, what was his name? Mike was playing. He didn't, he didn't, or... He never used a click track. They they just rocked. Now, yes, Mike, uh, they they doubled the time instead of the boom, 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 boom. They went to do 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 and went to you know thirty seconds, sixteenth notes. They picked up the vibe because in the seventies the rock was becoming complacent towards the end. You know, and it was all arena. It was the same plodding kind of sound which I understood did get a little bit redundant. So um, you go with the changes to a certain extent. I remember, I remember specifically, Mike, on a personal level, cutting my hair, like, and then getting that punk look. And then I remember being in the studio myself, playing and getting those 16th notes, you know, really keeping it that way. Because that, that emulates a youthful vibe when you play that, that kind of the BPMs were up to 180, 200, you know, you know what I mean? And I don't know if you call that exciting, but certainly the people that listened to it started getting into that like angst, you know, and then, you know, from there, whatever it went after that. But that was the change, and I believe in the 80s. Yeah. Did you feel at that time like you kind of had to go along with what was happening, this kind of like to stay relevant, to be a part of it? Or do you just feel like you wanted to experiment and try something new yourself? Both. I think that's a good question. I mean, yeah, you want to feel that you can do, uh, you know, you can do what you do. I mean, you start listening to some of the heavy metal bands and those bass drums are flying. They're sounding like two fucking trains going down the track, you know, and I'm looking, I'm saying, wait a second. I did it to keep up. I don't know if I was going to use it, but I said, you know, he's doing it. I mean, Gary Lyons, who did a lot of big production thing, he wrote me, check this band out, check that band. It wasn't the band. He said, check out the drummer, what he's doing. I mean, there's some interesting things to do. And yes, you know, not so much copying him, but saying, okay, that's what, okay. I just didn't want not to do something because I couldn't execute it. You know what I mean? I wanted to have the chops to do anything. And then it was my decision if I wanted to, you know, uh, and, and, and imply something else in the writing, you know. Um, I got nailed a few times for not doing a drum record, like Cozy Powell or something like that. And I did my first album because I love writing, and I wrote songs. And I was very fortunate to write for a few artists here and there. I love that, 
you know, and um, and I love drumming. So I was sort of conflicted between Bob Dylan and Keith Moon, you know, their, yeah. that vibe, writer, drummer. And that's, um, I guess that's my business, getting caught in the middle there. And um, and now I'm working with a couple of guys, Mike, a couple of some of the, two of the best musicians. I can't believe I found them. After many years, by the way, over the last the last. 10 years looking, you know, cause at a point in life, you, you want to play and do songs. Like if I'm going to do mountain, I want to do it the way it was originally recorded. Cause that's the way people fell in love with it. And as Leslie and I went into the eighties, we were jamming and doing everything to these songs to the point where you didn't recognize them. You know, Warren Haynes brought that to my attention because he was a huge mountain fan. When he came to Toronto, he called me up, come on down. This is before the, this is when they first started, the government mule. And and then they got huge because of the way that their dedication and commitment. He's playing with the Almond Brothers, but he developed his own band because he wanted to have his own thing, which was beautiful. And I remember New Year's Eve 2011 at the Beacon Theater. You know, he calls me up, says, come on down, Cork. It'd be nice to see you. I was in Connecticut, whatever. I come down the day before and... Uh, Matt Apps, the drummer, comes up. He says, you know, because they were doing a couple of days at the Beacon Theater in a row. And he says, you know, on New Year's Eve, uh, we're going to be playing Nantucket Sleigh Ride. It was a request from their fans for some reason. I said, that's pretty cool. And he, then he, Matt says to me, by the way, when it goes into the Nantucket Sleigh Ride, it's the Sleigh Ride part of the song. It's in a, a different time signature. How do you do this? Because it's which, And he's asking me about this. And I'm saying, so you're going to play it tomorrow night, New Year's Eve, and you're asking me how to do the drum part. In the back of my head, Mike, I'm going, well, why the fuck am I not being asked? You know? And so yeah. Matt, Matt looks at me, goes, and I go upstairs, and I said, and Warren's there, he's got his head down as I walk in. He says, oh, Cork, I know what you're here for. You know, Matt, he said, he said, Cork, listen, I would ask you to join in and play with us on New Year's Eve, you know, midnight. I don't think you even know the fucking song. And I'm saying, he's right. Because I thought about it. I said, over the years, I've played it so many different ways. And it's my fault because I didn't stay to the program. And he says, but I'll tell you what, Cork. Tomorrow night, New Year's Eve, why don't you come in the afternoon and we'll go over Nantucket Sleigh Ride. And if you get the part that you originally played, I'd love you to come in at midnight and play it. So I got to tell you, Mike, I jumped into the car, went home or wherever. I went back and I listened to that Tuck and Slay right over. And he was right. I had forgotten a good deal because it's a pretty involved song, you know, for time yeah. signatures. Anyways, so I did learn it. And I came the next day in the afternoon because they have an afternoon rehearsal. And I played it. And Warren says, you're on. So that night, it was a big honor. What a privilege to get on stage at the Beacon Theater, you know, with these guys and play Nantucket Sleigh Ride with her. I think it's online. I think it's on YouTube. But it, I'm just saying to you that, you know, over the years, 50 years, 40 years, you play these songs different if you're in that kind of band that does that. And Mountain's always been a jam band. You know, we take the song and we extend it for three or four days. No kidding. But, you know, we would go on and on with these, with these arrangements. And um, I think we lost track. I mean, Leslie and I lost track for sure. You know, even up till like maybe 10 years ago when I was playing some shows with, with, we went out with Joe Satriani, I think, and did a whole tour. We only were allowed to do, I think, 35 minutes. It was pretty tight. 
but we learned the songs, but Leslie still didn't get the words and the lyrics, you know, stuff to the songs that we were doing. And uh, I mean, it's not like, you know, fucking, uh, it's not like brain surgery. We're not doing these sophisticated Broadway shows. It's, but Leslie somehow either forgot or you didn't give a shit. And somehow, you know, we came up short, Mike. I mean, confidentially, the mountain's been together a long time on and off, right? And anytime I felt that it was going off the track, I was pretty selfish. I say, Leslie, either we get this right or I'm leaving. So I left when that time came. And there weren't many of them. You know, it's not like it was like a revolving door. There were just eras, and like you said, where Leslie tried to get relevant. He tried to play like this and play like that. And I'd say to him, Les, just play yourself. Just play. I don't know if you know, but Leslie's had a couple of solo records. And he's inviting Billy Gibbons down. He's inviting Slash down. He's, He's inviting guitar players who, by the way, love Leslie. They worship Leslie West. And he invites them down to play on his record. I'm saying, Leslie, it's your fucking record. Why are you inviting other players? It's not so much whether they play well or not. You got 20 guitar players on the fucking track. You don't need it. Invite a sax player. You know, invite a keyboard player. But that's his business, Mike. And I didn't, at that point, I didn't want to get involved with the, you know, his particular career. So I'm just saying that you got to know what you do and you know, you do what you do best. And I think your fan base will appreciate that, you know, otherwise you'll lose your fan base, you know, and that, oh, people have no time for that shit, you know, you know that. So what's oh, the agree. next question, Mike? I'm not even sure well, I'm well, answering well, the questions. Am I answering your, yeah, am I answering yeah, your questions? There's no questions here. It's just uh, two people bullshitting the music in general, but okay. like I said, on and off over the decades going in and out of mountain. I mean, is it a hard decision to make when you say, you know what, I have to walk away from this right now. But then again, you're also sticking to your guns and your values by doing that too. But does it come back to bite you in the ass sometimes later on? Yes, <laughs> that's exactly right. <laughs> it does. And it's very difficult. Hey, listen, drum. There's not like, it's not like I'm not a journeyman player. I, you know, I, I am, I'm one of those musicians. I'm not a hired hand. I sometimes wish I could be, but uh, you know what I mean? It's like, uh, I can go in and do a session. I've gone to a session with, you know, Frampton and, and meatloaf and stuff, but I am, I'm sorry to say I'm a show off and I don't play what people want me to play all the time. So yeah, I pay for it because I do leave a situation. If I'm not really totally, if I don't get that joy, joyful feeling, you know, so yeah, I did walk out on quite a few things. Do I regret it? Well, what am I? I don't regret too much. You know, I'm just saying that's my decision at the time. But I knew one thing that I had to do. I had to do what I thought was right for me in order to play and turn on whoever I was working with. You know, you get hired to do things. I didn't get hired a lot, Mike, because people knew that they get me in the session, they're going to get a lot more than they asked for. And I don't mean that in a good way, you know, all the time. So, yeah, it, it was difficult. It was. It, 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 listen, drummers don't have a huge choice. I mean, these days you don't even need drummers in the studio. A lot of guys are out of work because of program drumming, you know. And um, I think Hall & Oates were in the studio with the electric lady. And the producer at the time, engineer, was Mike Scott, a good friend of mine. And I was really down. This was like the early 80s. I was going, fuck, you know, this, I felt irrelevant. I said, fuck this. I'm going to go do something else. And, but I never did anything else. It was always musically, but he handed me 
uh, a Roland 477, you know, uh, keyboard that plays drums, you know, does all kinds of uh, program drumming. And he says, learn this and you could come and do the Hall and Oates sessions because he was in charge. So I said, well, fuck, thanks very much, Mike. That's very nice. Because he knew I needed to work. And I, uh, Mike, I studied that thing for a day and night for a week, two weeks. I couldn't make sense of it at all. I had to bring the thing back, hand it to him. I said, I'm sorry, Mike. This kind of drumming is not for me. There are guys that specialize in programming, you know, and, and, and give it to them. So I had to give up a few things because I didn't aspire to being a program drummer. And, um, and a lot of guys can do it, and I admire that, you know. But uh, to leave a situation under any circumstances takes, a few, takes, takes some thought, and it's a challenge, you know. Because yeah. you don't know where you're going to well, land, you know. You know. That's true. Yeah. Well, I mean, I mean Clark, going back to, to the Pompeii stuff, I mean, this all took place, I want to say, mid-'70s to late-'70s. I mean, were these songs yeah. that were maybe like leftover mountain songs that you never got around to or stuff Ian Hunter was working on with Mata Hoople? Or did you guys just get into the studio and say, you know what, let's just jam out some stuff and see what we come up with? No. As a matter of fact, I lived with Ian for a, a great, like, for almost a year on and off. I stayed up in Chappaqua with him. No, we went downstairs every day and we wrote. We wrote songs, you know, because he's brilliant. And I, I love collaborating. And at the time, he didn't have a deal. He didn't have anything going on. And, um, you know, we enjoyed just, we didn't jam. Ian's not a jammer. He's a play. He's a writer. You know, he, he's serious, sits down the piano. But, I mean, when I say serious, he, he, he plays great. He's like a honky-tonk piano player. And he, I'll tell you what, at the time he had a hit record with Barry Antelope. <laughs> Call him that, Barry, Barry Antelope. Barry Manilow. It was called Ships in the Night. He wrote the song yeah. Barry played. It's a ballad. Big record. And I remember saying, wow, good for you. Good for you, Ian. So I'll fuck, I can't, I can't fucking stand it. I said, well, what's your problem? He says, I'm a fucking rocker. I don't want to play. I don't want fucking ballads coming out. It turns out that Ian's one of the best ballad writers around. You know, and uh, he's a great writer. But anyway, so he says, I need your help. You got to help me rock, man, because I'm a rocker. And he says, and you're a rocker. I said, "Okay, (laughs) if that's what you want to do. Anyway, so we did. No, we didn't jam. Like we uh, we took it very seriously, wrote down the we wrote we wrote about uh, solidly about six or seven songs, which are on the record. Uh, Silent movie. uh, I ain't no angel. And um uh, yeah, these this was material we were seriously writing for ourselves. And again, uh, the record company came in and said, we want to do a super group, you know, and, and bring in all the, uh, brought in Bob Ezrin to produce. And I think it's in the, um, I think it's in the, uh, uh, the press release. You probably got that, right? For the, um, yeah, for I the don't, record. I, I don't even read those things because it's easy just to talk to you all and right. find everything out that's going on. <laughs> all right. No, it's no problem. I had no problem with that. It's just that I don't want to, uh, repeated if you've heard it, but basically we brought yeah. in Andy Fraser to play bass. We had a studio in Briarcliff uh, available to, re- you know, demo studio. And Lee Michaels came in and Bob Ezrin came in to take care of things. So that's when we did some jamming. Uh, Steve Hunter from Alice Cooper and uh, Mick, well, Mick wasn't there yet. Mick Ronson, he came in after. But basically, we started to see if we can put this super group together, which I thought was full of shit anyways. But hey, they were paying us to see if this worked. Well, it didn't quite work, Mike, and everybody went their own way. And they're, they're, Ian and myself are sitting there going, oh, what we do right now, mate? 
And he says, how about I bring in Ronson? Rono, you know, whatever his name is. Yeah. And I say, are you kidding? I love Mick Ronson. You think he'd do it, you know? You know, that kind of thing. Oh, fuck, he'd love it. So Mick Ronson came in. What a joy. And then he said, we need bass player. I said, you want me to give Felix a call? Because he wasn't doing much. Give Felix. So, Felix. so we had the track. We had the musicians, you know, we had the four pieces for the, that was the stuff. That was when the basic tracks were made for some of the Ian Hunter songs. Now on some of the other songs on my solo record, I brought in because, uh, cause we wanted to re- re- redo them. And Eric Clapton came down to Capricorn while we were recording and he came in and he's an old friend. Remember I was telling you before about them coming to Montreal to get their visas. The cream did the same thing. They had to come there. So this is before Eric was a, a God. So what I'm saying is that going back to the mid-60s, um, as it turned out, I met Eric on other, another Earth circumstances because the Cream record at that time just came out, Disraeli Gears. It was Cream's second record, but a big one. And it got dissed by Rolling Stone. They said it was awful. I can't believe these great musicians would make such an awful record. And they were, pl- they were going to play Montreal that week and Jack got so upset he OD'd on these sleeping pills and he was in the hospital so there I don't know where Ginger was but Felix called me because Eric was sitting in a hotel in Montreal where I live and he said Cork can you go and sit with Eric he doesn't he doesn't know anybody I didn't know Eric at that time so but he you know I came I said hi Eric Felix told me you're you know, you and I brought. Of course, I knew to bring a piece of hash and a couple of gorgeous girls. You know, just to <laughs> entertain. And so this was way back in the mid '60s, and Eric wasn't a god, but we had a great, great time. It was really cool. And then what happened as years passed? You know, I'd see him here, and of course, because of Felix, that you know, we would cross paths over in England, yada yada. But then come to 19, I guess 76, 77, I'm recording it. At uh, Capricorn Studios, John's, uh, John's, uh, John Sandlin, uh, the producer of the Almond Brothers, is producing my record. And uh, off the record, Mike, uh, I didn't want to have a solo deal. I was looking to write songs. But when I sent in my demos, the record company loved them. Why don't you make your own record? Well, I didn't think I was, I, don't, I didn't have the confidence about singing. But to, to, to step back in capsule form, Eric came walking in and says, hey, Cork, how you doing? But up it up. I said, do you mind if I help you out? And yeah, I said, fucking A, hello. You know, so he got on the, um, on this, uh, on the guitar and started playing rhythm for the song On My Way to Georgia and killing it, you know, really. And I'm going, wow. And uh, uh, we had Percy Sledge's bass player, this big black cast, just, just laid it down so... And this is the studio uh, session in Capricorn. So then Eric's on that. So what happened is we I just thought I'd do a, comp, uh, a compilation of some of the best songs that I felt I recorded and see what happens. Anyways, um, Dickie Betts showed up on another record and it was great. But here's the thing, Mike, this wasn't going to be a celebrity record. We wrote the song so these players can play the songs. You know, this wasn't like, let's get this guy, we'll sell more records. There was no ulterior motive. It was, let's just make yeah. this record as good as we can, but mostly write the songs as good as they can be. So to me, Secret Sessions, I'm proud of, because as you started with as saying, you know, how come it wasn't taken seriously at the time? I'm telling you, it's because the punks came in and blew all the, you know, all the oldsters out. 
That's basically what happened. So the record at that point got put off. And then the King Biscuit Flower Hour found it somewhere, and they said, well, how about we put put out put these songs together, whatever. And I said, fine. This was the 90s, I guess, whatever. And um, uh, the company went under. You know, apparently something happened, so the record got lost there. And then my friend who ran the company says, how about I give it to Voice Prince Records in the U.K.? This guy, uh, Rob Ailing. I said, okay. I did. You understand, I was doing other things. This was what going on. This record was going around under the radar. And then it went there. And then uh, the U.K. Voice Prince sold it to Floating World, another U.K. company. It just kept on going, falling through the cracks. Until, yeah. I guess, well, until like last January, when Jason Hartless, this drummer who I, uh, he's a drummer for Ted Nugent, but over the years, I, he, he says I taught him how to drum. We were friends, and it was good. Uh, he's, you know, we were in Detroit. He says, by the way, Cork, do you remember that song, Growing Old Rock and Roll? I said, yeah. I said, he says, that's always been my favorite, because I played it from way back. And the, he's, when I started teaching him, he was seven years old. I mean, over wow. literally over 10, 15 years, I would go back and not me, but we, you know, he'd come to New York and he'd, we, we'd do sessions and I was trying to show him the way, you know, but I never thought for one minute that he would become the drummer that he became. However, he also was given the keys to start this vinyl company. And he said, do you mind, you know, he loved, he loved the original secret sessions. He says, you know, it never came out on vinyl. And it's such a special record because of the uniqueness of the time zone because it's, it's over 50 years. And I, here I am 70 years old thinking, I guess I grew up with rock and roll. So he, he wanted to record it again. Anyways, if you get a, if you get a chance, Mike, check out the press release because it's got, it's got everything written out. And even in the actual vinyl, which, by the way, I've, I've got one copy. When you go on the inside, it tells the story of the sessions, like how it came about. And Great. if you're interested, it's there. Um, Sean is the one that uh, turned me on, you know, to all this and who, you know, these interviews. So I would suggest if you want to just give Sean a shout and say, can you send me the press releases? And that way there you can round out what I'm telling you. Because I can go on forever on this. I mean, this is 50 years of back and forth, and I, you know, I could put you to sleep real quick. But carry on. What's the next <laughs> question? But I mean, are you happy that we said it finally, it finally is going to see the light of day, and people are going to hear this? I mean, and and it still sounds relevant to me. I mean, rock and roll never goes anywhere, Good. in my opinion. Yeah, that's very kind of you. Yes, I'm very proud. I have to say, I mean. It was, those were great moments, you know, all of them, you know, and I'm not talking about, again, the celebrity part about it. The music, I didn't know Eric played rhythm like that. Everybody knows Eric Clapton plays amazing lead, but he got it and he loved doing it because he never gets a chance just to play a rhythm. And it so happens on that particular song, Leslie and I wrote that, Leslie West and I wrote, because we love Georgia and we love, you know, of course, the South has been very good to Mountain. And uh, yeah, it's... um, it was, it is, it's a real privilege to, first of all, to be alive, you know, I mean, those songs were written when I was 20 years old, so, um, but you're right, it's very kind of you to say that they still stand up, you know, it, that's, that's terrific, that's a terrific yeah. compliment, and at the time, we had Bobby Clearmountain, you know, engineering, who became 
you know, probably one of the top engineers in the world today, you know, was terrific. And um, this is when he was a kid. The record plant, you know, the power station, it wasn't even finished. They had all the scaffolding up, and we got a great deal. So we would set up, and, Mike, I would put the drums, because it was my fucking record, I put the drums in the middle of the power station, and it was a huge, tall ceiling. So the echo and the ambience of the drums were beautiful, and I put the guitar player and the bass player in the corners in the little, the little rooms. Because it was my record, Mike. It was my record. Yeah. Fuck them. You know, anyways. No, but it, that's why it, some of the sounds are really cool. And I'm glad you, you, you observed that, you know. Yeah, it was oh, cool. Really cool. Are you, are you still going to get out there and play? You think you're going to do any shows around this? Get some of these songs out there? Oh, yeah, yeah. Together? Yeah. We did. Well, the band I got, this, I got these new guys. I have to mention them to you because... Probably be the last band I'll ever do when I say that, because these two guys are two of the. And I I looked for guys, but the the, the singer, the singer, and the uh, guitar player I'm working with is a, a gentleman, young kid. He's like 31 or 32. He's uh, his name is Chris Shutters, S H U T T E R S. Chris Shutters, and he introduced me to this bass player, sort of more of a producer in a studio in Toledo. And his name was Mark Michael, M-I-K-E-L. So I went last Christmas just to hang out with Chris to see what we were going to do. And uh, he says, you've got to check out Mark. And we go in the studio. And then somebody called, you guys want to come down and play a show? You um, want to play a show um, at this place called The Dirty Bird in Toledo. And we said, fuck it, let's go. Well, we played a show, the three of us, and Mark learned the mountain songs. And... It's brilliant. These guys were, it blew me away. You know, I, I've seen these guys for two days and here we are playing, I wouldn't call it a professional show. It was a restaurant, but the people went nuts because uh, Chris can emulate Leslie and even more. He, he, you'll, you'll know when you, hopefully you'll feel the same way when you hear the band. Yeah, we're playing on the road. We're doing it. So we're playing a festival in uh, Brooklyn in the middle of, Jan of June, the middle of June. And then we're doing some dates around the area, uh, the Northeast, uh, Detroit, uh, again, Toledo, Cleveland, Chicago. This is going to be June into the summer. Uh, it's going to be June. So, I mean, it'll be, it'll be listed on my, I, I think the name of my link is CorkyLangWorks.com. It has, it'll have the shows listed at that point, hopefully, you know, because I have my manager take care of that over in Finland. It's it's pretty it's it's pretty challenging these days, uh, Mike. I guess you know that. Oh, I mean, yeah. The business is really in a very is in a flux. But we do have some shows, and we're playing the Patchogue Theater. I'm actually doing a package with Kofi Baker and his band. So we're doing Mountain, and he's going to play Cream. So we're doing this at the Patchogue Theater in Long Island, uh, New York, uh, on the 28th that weekend. I think we're doing two shows, 28th and 29th. It's a big theater, Mike, so I hopefully yeah. will be able to f fill some of them. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Long Island. I know the place. They have some yeah. great venues. You do, oh, you do know the place, yeah. Yeah, anyway, I try to so avoid Long Island because it takes like nine days to get there on the Bell Parkway, but, you know. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean, the same way in, in New Jersey. They go. I yeah. love New Jersey, but you're right. To get in there, and you're right. It's that bottleneck as you go through New York, you know, around the city. Oh, it's a disaster. And I came, I, well, I came down from Canada. I moved down to Canada to Long Island, 
I can't believe how big it is. I thought it was just a strip. It's huge. But anyway, so I'm here, so it's cool. But yes, we are playing quite a few shows. We've already done BB Kings last February, and then we did a place in a great place in Pennsylvania, Jim Thorpe. I think it was a Moss Showed or Showed Rock or whatever it is. Great theater there. And then we played Woodstock. We played the Bearsville Theater. We've done some shows in the winter, you know. But uh, we're make we're recording a new record, which I'm very proud of. What I'm saying is I'm moving on, and I believe the musicians I'm, I'm, I mentioned will will really help to the extent that you can promote anything in this business now it'll be it'll it's going to be my focus now oh, that's great now, Cole, that's from the where first it's time going you got yeah, up on yeah. sta- from the first time you got up on stage and played your first you know real life show and got paid for it did you think that you'll still be doing it all these decades later that this was actually going to turn to something you can do for a living and still you know have fun doing most of the time if it's fun. no <laughs> i know it's a love-hate no. relationship never never Get, you gotta be. I mean, no, never. And I believe a lot of musicians that I know that have never thought it would be this way. No, that's a good question because really there was no rock industry when I started. So now I was I was going to be a teacher. You know, I wanted to be a, a high school teacher and I wanted to play. I was going to continue to play, but I never thought it would go this way. You know, um, but it did, and I'm thrilled. My instincts are pretty good. They're not great. They're pretty good. So the decisions I've made, apart from the dark decisions, which we all make, were good. And I'm I'm very, very happy where I am and what I'm doing. And I think from a maturity point of view, I like to think every day I wake up, if I have a drum set around, I play it. I have a rehearsal place. So I just play to keep up so I have my chops, you know, because when when the kind of music that I'm playing – is not, you know, laid back ballads, you know, uh, there's still a great deal of energy that goes out for the mountain songs. I play the songs the way I recorded them when I was 21 years old. So I play with that kind of energy. I don't know if it translates, but you can tell me that when you see a show, you know, and I'd love you to come to a show and check it out, but we will be playing New Jersey. We're going to go back. Um, Have you ever heard of that, that club in Jim Thorpe? I think it's Mosh or Schoss, Schott, Mach, I can't even pronounce it's a German name. It's a theater in, in Jim Thorpe. It's not that far from Newark. You know, it's about 25, 30 minutes. No? Yeah, that one All I right. never heard of, but I'm going to come see you in June in Brooklyn. All right, that would be great. I don't even know the place right now, but it's a, you know it's one of those rock festivals where they have all the metal bands come in. It's it's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. We did a tour, Mike. Last well, we did uh, Chris Shutters and myself, and we had a bass player play. We did 24 shows all across U.S. and Canada in like 31 days, or you know, in six weeks. We did. We were driving 30, 300 miles a day. We'd go from Boston to Philly from Philly to Raleigh every day, one after another. It was brutally, brutally challenging, but it was great. And somehow the agent who I got through Bill Ward, Bill Ward from Black Sabbath was supposed to do this tour. It was a heavy metal tour. You know, these clubs that held three, 400 at the most. And these guys, it would all, no, no TVs, no restaurant, just a bar and the music. It was, it was a pure kind of, uh, a very pure experience. So we did it. I said, anyway, I got to do it. This is, but Bill Ward never did it. And he turned me on to the agent. The agent says, Bill says, you should love that. You want to do it? I said, yes, 
But what I'm getting at is we just did everywhere, but we didn't have anything to promote. It was kind of actually pretty unique. We just went and played. And a lot of the heavy metal bands, they looked up to Mountain. It was nice, you know, because I'm saying we're not really a heavy metal band. We're just a rock band. But the people showed up, and the especially the musicians, they were all in their 20s and 30s, and they loved it. And each show had about two or three bands. You know, and we would be the headline. It was quite something, Mike. It was quite something. And uh, so that's the kind of show we'll probably be doing uh, in Brooklyn. And I'm not sure the name of the place, you know. But when anytime you have more than three or four bands, it's called a festival, right? That's right. Forget yeah. about being in the fields with 100,000 people. No, no, that's not what's going on, you know. But I love it. So it's, you know, I got to tell you, I'm totally... I'm totally into it, and I don't know why, but it's 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 in there. It's in my gut, and it's uh, it's great to play with these these two new musicians because you get tired just playing here and there. I still feel very dedicated to the future, you know, and um, we'll see how it goes. You know, we'll see how it goes. I just really appreciate your support. It's very kind of you to call and and do this, and um, you know, however you see it and translates. Hopefully you'll get a copy of the of the vinyl. Apparently it's been sold out. They pressed like fifteen hundred units, and Sony sold them out. I don't. I can't even get a hold of any. I have one advanced copy, and that's it. So I hope they get. I hope they distribute them to you, etc. I hope Sean will get you one. You know. I I, I love it that it's on vinyl again. I feel like uh, back in the days, <laughs> he actually bought a record. Yeah, it is. And I'm glad that it well, sold out because it means yeah. that there's a lot of interest. Yes, it was. It was actually shocking. Between you and I, I said, what? Because Jason, the guy, he was going to press three, 400 as a token, you know, to have it out there. And then Sony came back and, well, wait a second. You know, we want, they were going to order 1,200. And, and, and Jason said, okay, then I'll press 1,500 so we have 300 for ourselves. And then Sony took them all. And the pressing plant is, what's his name, Jack White's pressing plant in Detroit. He just opened up for Third Man. I didn't know about that. I'm not tuned into the record store day thing at all, but I'm finding out about it and I'm learning about it. And it's, it's really something. It's really something like, you know, uh, I said, well, can't you reorder them? He says, no, no, we have to change the color of the vinyl because this is all part of the, of that cult of, 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 of music lovers that love the vinyl. And my son is getting into that now, which is wild. He's finding all my vinyl like in, in the house that I left for his for his mom and stuff. And he's he's loving it. He flipped out. He said, Dad, you're doing vinyl? Cool. And I said, yeah, it's cool. I'm happy and I'm glad you think the same way. It's exciting. It's just going round and round. Right? 50 years later, we're back to vinyl. And I love That's it. That's right. You know, I love so do it. I. I love the idea. Yeah, you get it. I got it. All right. Uh, my, if there's anything else you need, call me. You got my number. I'm around. I'm going overseas. You this weekend and and hopefully you're good and uh yeah have a good time with it anything you need sean will get to you and uh it's kind of i'm in my i'm in my promo slut mode so i am doing the best i can (laughs) to see and answer all the questions i can you know and you take care of yourself mike nice chatting you too okay i look forward to meeting you have a safe trip you too take care buddy you too bye-bye now bye-bye
All right, Corky Lang, what a talk, huh? A bunch of great stories from that guy. There you go. That was his project from back in the 70s called Pompeii. Growing old with rock and roll. I know it's not normally what we play here on the Heavy Metal Mayhem radio show, but when you get a chance to talk to Corky Langford Mountain, you go for it. All right, we're going to wrap it up here tonight. I want to thank our guest, Brad Sinsel from TKO, Corky Langford Mountain. we got a great show for everybody next week. Greg, uh, who, I forgot who we have on from Red Baron. I believe it's uh, Greg uh, Eiselberg, or the drummer. He's on, and we have James Rivera from Hellstar next week. So don't forget to tune in. We'll wrap it up April in a pretty cool way. And we're lining up all of our guests for May. We're going to close out here tonight with one more song. We want to wish our friend Iman safe travels to the Keep It True Festival. Have a great time next week. You're going to see a lot of killer bands, and I'm kind of jealous in a way. But to make up for it, I will be here in New York City going to Brooklyn to the Rage of Armageddon Festival. I will be seeing a lot of cool bands. So if you're in Brooklyn, I'll see you guys next Saturday. If not, I'll see you when I see you. Take care, everybody. Have a great week. Here's Hex under the spell.
Panera now delivers, so you can order good, clean food right to your office or door or porch or backyard or front yard or apartment or dorm or castle or shop or worksite or wherever Panera delivers for lunch, dinner, and everywhere in between. Click the banner to order or visit PaneraBread.com. Participating locations only. Panera. Food as it should be. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, only by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.